Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Chris Yogurst, author of the book, The Warner Brothers, published in 2023 by the University Press of Kentucky. I previously interviewed Chris for New Books and Film in 2020 for his previous book, Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew Baiting, Anti-Nazism, and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering in Motion Pictures. In addition to being an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Chris also writes extensively for many academic and popular publications. In his new book, he discusses the founding and rising of one of the great American film studios. He also assesses the four Warner Brothers and their culture and cultural heritage for the United States. In our talk, we discuss the book in detail and review the studio as it celebrates its 100th anniversary. Welcome, Chris Yogurst. Hi, Chris. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you were able to join me. I'm talking with Chris Yogurst, um, author of the new book, The Warner Brothers, published uh, by the University Press of Kentucky. We are actually talking about a month before the book is officially published. September 5th, I think, is the release date. But the good thing is I was able to get Chris in and so we could talk about the book early so we have it ready for release date. Chris and I actually talked back in 2020 about his previous book, Hollywood Hates Hitler. It's not a longer title, but I figured that's enough of the um, title. Multiple to, uh, subtitle, yeah. But it was a great book, obviously, and uh, so I'm glad Chris is continuing to stay busy because we got a chance to talk about his new book. He also, if, if you don't follow Chris on Twitter or whatever it's called these days, um, he definitely has a lot of writing out there. It just seems like you're constantly writing for public both popular and academic publications is seems like you I mean, see you writing for the hollywood reporter and a number of other popular magazines and periodicals which is great because that means these days academics can can sort of hit both sides which is a wonderful way for us to stay relevant these days so um i'm glad uh, we'll have a chance to talk about the new book so obviously the title i mean just all i have to do is think about this and there's no subtitle to the book it's just the warner brothers and the title gives it away that the pretty much says what right. the book is exactly. about it's not warner brothers the studio necessarily although obviously that's part of the story but it's the warner brothers the brothers and that was uh, very important to you to try to tell the story through the four Warner Brothers and how they came up uh, to found a studio and how they um, ran that studio for quite a few years. Obviously, it started around 23, but it, uh, um, the studio itself, they ran it for quite a number of decades during the golden age, quote unquote, of Hollywood. 
and uh, we're going to talk about all that. But first, let's get a little bit more background as to why you felt that this was a book. Obviously, we know it's their 100th anniversary. They're certainly not making it, uh, they're not hiding that fact, the Warner, you know, Warner Brothers, but um, we know them, them as being one of the big studios that at least is still in existence in some format or form or fashion. But why did you decide to talk about the Warner Brothers and write this book, given that, as we know, there's been other written writings about it. So what was your reasoning? Well, that's a good question. So this really started, so when I was doing my dissertation is when I really learned a lot about Harry Warner. So I always wanted to write a book about Harry Warner because, you know, when you think of the Warner Brothers, you kind of think of Jack Warner as the Warner brother, right? Like he was the one. And really, when you look at their their lineage, you know, he Jack was still alive in the 60s and 70s when kind of this resurgence of interest of golden age Hollywood came and, you know, Bogdanovich was interviewing people and, and all this. And, you know, Harry was long gone. And I, I ended up really kind of how the book came to be is I was, I was pretty much set that I was going to do a biography of Harry. And then I went to a book talk in Milwaukee uh, for uh, Patrick McGilligan's book on Mel Brooks and I met him. I'd always wanted to meet him. I had never met him. We got to talking. He's like, hey, we should have lunch and talk about writing. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. And it was then he said that I need to do the entire brothers, you know, write all write a book about all of that. And if I want to if I want to, you know, use that as a conduit to give Harry a little bit more historical significance. Great. But really, uh you know, the Warner Brothers story has not really been told in full. I mean, you've got, there's been a bunch of books, most of which focus on Jack, um, which was, you know, again, part of the impetus for me, like wanting to to recenter Harry. Um, but even other books, uh, you know, leave more to be desired. I mean, you have David Thompson's book, which is great, but it's short, it's, it's tiny, just kind of a snapshot. Uh, and then you have Cass Warner's uh, kind of family history, which is fabulous. Um, but that's still only, you know, she wrote that when there was only so much access to materials. So it was kind of the perfect time to really take what everything was out there um, and fill in a bunch of gaps uh, and also kind of reanalyze some of the bigger legends and try to put everything in context. And then really, you know, that was 2018. And I just kind of got lucky that it finished uh, in time for the 100th anniversary. That wasn't really my goal. Um, but kind of a perfect marketing timing. Yeah, because uh, obviously there, I've noticed that you actually, this is, you know, we, we we talked about Hollywood Hates Hitler, but there was actually a book earlier than that that you did for Ronan Littlefield, I think it was, about the, yeah. and it's, I assume that came, was that out of your dissertation or was that just a... Yeah, it was, it, that book was expanded for my dissertation. It was called From the Headlines to Hollywood. And really what I was analyzing there was, you know, there's there's always this talk of how Warner Brothers ripped from the headlines, but no one really ever sits down and kind of expands on that idea. It's always just kind of used as a description. Um, so I, I really wanted to take a deep dive into how and where they were really, and what headlines they were ripping from. And it was during that project where actually really each project is led into the next. So that project is when I discovered Harry Warner's testimony um, defending the studio against the Senate, who was going after Hollywood's anti-Nazi movies. That sparked my research to do Hollywood's hate, Hollywood Hates Hitler. Uh, and then, 
you know, just kind of hanging on Harry Warner there. That's when I, you know, then that blood back into the Warner Brothers where I could revisit this and just expand that narrative. And like you said in the introduction, you know, it's not Warner Bros, it's the Warner Brothers. So I wanted to look at, you know, usually anything written about Warner Brothers, it's the studio, it's the stars, it's the directors, and then the brothers kind of fill in uh, along the way where I, this is inverted, where it's the brothers and the studio and the stars kind of fill in, you know, where necessary. And of course, there were four Warner Brothers and they were all involved in some way, shape or form. And obviously Jack was the one who made it the longest, um, but all four, at least at the beginning, it was meant to be a group uh, project or a group uh, put together. Now, obviously, we've had studies of previous. Um, I've read. I've had a lot of guests that talked about other than some of the other studios and how they came up. And one of the stories that one of the things that tends to appear pretty regularly with these early, with the early studios is how often they were formed by either immigrants or people who were children of immigrants, like first generation Americans and that they started more with the technological side and then eventually um, got into the more the other side as well. So obviously, can we talk a little background of the Warner um, family? Sure. Uh, they're from Poland, or at least that was their heritage was Polish, but it was another one of the situations where they came over at a certain time, the family came over and eventually got into the film industry. Yeah, they, you know, one of the things I found, and this is just you know, part of the problem of looking at coverage from well over 100 years ago, you know, there's a lot of, it, there was a lot of different sources that cite different starting points for the Warner Brothers. Um, and I landed on 1905, uh, just because the earliest recollections that are at least as trustworthy as we can find, you know, from the teens and the 20s all the way up to 1930, Variety did a 25th anniversary of the Warner Brothers in the industry kind of thing, you know, so it was like, you know, but there's a lot of people who've argued 1906 and up to 1907, maybe 1904, it's all over the place. Um, but they really started, like you said, a lot of these people started um, in, in the technical side. And, you know, everyone knows the story of Sam Warner, you know, bringing home this projector and they had a copy of The Great Train Robbery and it blew everyone's mind and they wanted to show friends in the neighborhood. And then they started, you know, it, it got more and more popular and they they rented this space and started in exhibition and they started, uh, you know, charging to see movies. Um, and that's really where they started. They had a couple venues, um, and really over time, you know, during the, you know, 19, you know, from 1905 till into the teens, I mean, they, they got into distribution and they started to, to rent prints of movies and then, and distribute that within their network, uh, and, and to other people. And, and these are the companies that, you know, would then famously get shut down by Edison and his trust, and they would have to start over again. Um, but that that was the order in which it happened. They started showing movies, then they distributed movies, and then in the in the late teens, mid to late teens, they started making movies. And and um, Jack and Sam would uh, you know travel around with some people and some some inexpensive cameras and film footage and slap stuff together. And um, a lot of those movies are lost, but the Jack has assured us all in his own writing that those movies are all garbage. But 
you know, that that was really when they learned, you know, all, all of the tricks of the trade, all the layers of, you know, what became vertical integration in Hollywood, they really learned um, on the ground, you know, from the ground up, they really, you know, they, they, you know, they had to run theaters, they had to run distribution networks, and then they had to make movies. And they did all of this. And they had all of this kind of perfected long before they incorporated in 1923. So where did they where where did they grow up? I mean, were they were all the four brothers born in the United States? Or were no, no, Jack was born in Canada. Um, there's actually some conflicting sources on Sam. Um, the biggest difference is uh, Harry and Albert were born overseas. So they were, and Neil Gabler, Gabler points this out in his um, in his great book, um, An Empire of Their Own, that, uh, you know, Harry and Albert being the older brothers were also ver very much more old world, more traditional, where you have Jack and Sam were more new world, more rabble rousers, more, you know, buck the system kind of mentality. Um, and then there was also other brothers. There was, there was some some siblings that died in the late 1800s. Um, but but more importantly, there was, um, or more recently rather, there was there was a, a David Warner who had special needs and lived with his parents their whole life, and they they took care of him. And then Milton Warner was actually going to join them in their uh, in the movie business. And um, when he was in high school in the 19 teens, got a Scott got a actually got picked up by playing professional baseball, was going to join forgetting what team it was now, but was going to play professional baseball for a while and then join his brothers um, in the movie business. But but tragically had uh, like a heart attack and just died um, at like 18, 19 years old, um, which was just a huge tragedy for the family, one of many that they would endure. Um, but the the biggest difference is and it's interesting you know there's all these things that would make you make us think well, how would history be different so how would history be different if milton was in there you know would he have balanced the brothers out a little bit more um because we all know sam you know died in 1927 and sam was really this bridge between jack and his older brothers mostly jack and harry and you know there was always this tension between those two and Sam seemed to be this bridge between them. And when Sam died, that that mediator was gone. And um, the, this this conflict kind of boils throughout this entire narrative and kind of explodes towards the end of Harry's life. Um, but there's there's plenty of drama in it. And it, you know, it makes it makes it, it it's you know, I, I find myself writing this you know, a lot of the the history, the film history, the politics is all fascinating, but so much of the family history is just, it's it's fascinating and there's some great stuff, but there's also some really, truly sad things, some avoidable, some not, that happened to this this family. You know, Lewis Warner dies, Harry's son, who was going to, you know, also come into the company and, um, you know, they're, they're, they, they had to weather a lot. I mean, this family really had to... I mean, especially today, you 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 know, there's with the writer strike and, and the actor strike going on, there's all this talk of the CEOs right now and in how much they make and how much they're responsible for and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like when you look at what these founding moguls um had to weather to get to where they were, it's uh, there's just no comparison. You know, there's almost nothing like it today. And um it's it's really just it's quite a story of survival and perseverance. So we've got the four brothers who were the Warner brothers for purposes of our discussion. 
did they one of the things you talk about is their roles and it's not just you i mean these this has become in some ways the stuff of legend of what what each of them brought to the organization or to the eventual company um let's talk that about that a little bit are those roles that t- seem to be the regular way where were they per- particularly or reasonably correct did they each have their own role in the whole company early on yeah absolutely so really in in the beginning it was a lot of i mean sam really spearheaded this of course and then it was you know jack was still pretty young so it was harry and albert really took the reins um on the business end of things to really get the structure established for them to operate theaters and distribution networks and that kind of stuff and jack was really just kind of along for the ride in the earliest days once you get into the teens, you know, there's all these legends of, of Jack, you know, being the being the greeter or ripping tickets or, um, you know, singing horrible songs to get people to leave the theater so the next group could come in. And, you know, so there's a lot of comic anecdotes about his his role early on. But once they got into to um, production, he was he was one of the I mean, he's the one that, you know, when people talk about Jack being kind of the showman of the family, I mean, he was the one who really took the reins and was really interested in the showmanship part of building this kind of business. But, um, you know, all the all the descriptions of Sam as the technical genius is, is completely true. You know, Jack, the showman, Albert, really, you know, the business end, you know, really, as as years go on, the distribution whiz and then Harry, uh, kind of the you know the the genius for uh getting loans and 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 um really political management and uh you know a lot of the the really top end stuff he was he was really a genius at from from start to finish and he learned a lot of that actually some of the stories i found i mean you know really probably no different with you know a lot of the other other moguls i mean they they you know, those years from 1905 to 1923 weren't all successes. There was tons of failures in there. And they, and it wasn't just with, I mean, sometimes they lost everything in the film business and then it had to go back to running a grocery store. And there's one story I found um, in, in, in a paper from Ohio from back in, in the, in the day um, when they were still living there where Harry Warner, uh, you know, he had this great idea of buying bulk, um, but then bought too much, um, you know, perishable goods, and then, you know, it all spoiled before he could sell it all. And then that pretty much bankrupted, you know, that project, you know, they ran bike shops and ice cream shops and all kinds of stuff. And they really, you know, spent, you know, all this time communicating with, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, communicating with an audience, you know, they, they saw their customers, and they tried to create a culture of what do they want? Um, and Harry really learned a lot of this working with his dad in a shoe repair shop, um, and they 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 uh, had some success with that. So they really, again, they, these years prior to 1923, there were so many pivotal things that happened, and so many things that really, probably would have sunk, uh, you know, any any other anyone else's confidence too. I mean, the times that they got crushed and had to start over, um, even just in small things in Ohio, or if they're getting their their companies destroyed by Thomas Edison's. Um, patent company, um, they they were just absolutely fearless 
in in uh, starting over again. And I think that all of those attitudes and all of those skills really came together in the 1920s. Um, and that's why really by by the Great Depression, really, I mean, that they were so successful, they were able to weather that probably more effectively almost than anyone else, because they had they had seen so much growth in the 20s. Um, that I really building on each of their individual talents, and you know, Sam bringing the technology in and doing the research and then, and then, um, uh, you know, convincing Harry to invest in it, and then Jack and Sam being able to manage the studio, which by that time they had already managed productions in the Midwest and managed productions in small studios they rented in LA before they got to the Bronson Studios. Um, so really by the late 20s, these, you know, they were the kind of the young guns in Hollywood, but really they were old pros by then. Yeah, I remember interviewing Von DeCreft about her book about Fox. And yep. now he's somebody that the studio still exists in some form or another, but he was out of it pretty early on. It was the depression to a large extent that hurt him a great deal. Yep. But uh, it, just discussing, I remember taking a class when I was going to graduate school about history of um, of the consumer culture in the United States. And this period is where consumer culture becomes so important. And the consumer, and doesn't matter what you're trying to sell them, you know, it was more of a matter of let's find something to sell and then we have to figure out, okay, how do we get to our customers? How do we get product? And so virtually every story of the, at least the successful studios, it almost sounds very alike. You start with distribute, as you just pointed out, first with distribution and then product. Eventually you get to production and so on. So um, obviously the Warner Brothers followed that same mold, although the indication is everybody was pretty much working on their own. So everybody came to the same idea. That's sort of why the consumer culture concept is not that different. Um, where were they located early on? I mean, I know Hollywood ends up become, or Los Angeles West Coast becomes the place where everybody ends up. Where did they start? Well, yeah, so they had they had some properties near, I'm forgetting how to describe exactly where it was in Los Angeles, but I know it's near where the Sea League Zoo was. Um, so this is apparently where the you know MGM Lion was and all this kind of stuff. So they they did a lot of, filming there. I think it was closer to downtown. Um, and they had a couple different properties. Um, and then they had the Bronson Studios, which is now, now owned by Netflix. Uh, and um, they were there for most of the 20s. And they had that. That's where they did pretty much all of their famous 19. I mean, the jazz singer, uh, they did a lot there, you know, there and in New York, because they had See what else studios they had. So they had the Bron, you know, by the mid twenties they had the Bronson Studios, and then they bought Vitagraph, which had studio in Brooklyn, and and that's that's what the, that's the technology that they they rebranded as Vitaphone, which was the synchronized sound. So they had the Brooklyn studio, they had Bronson, and then by the late twenties, Harry buys First National, which had started building in Burbank, and that's where the Warner Brothers Studio is today. Um, so they started expanding that by the late twenties, early thirties. Um, and Harry bought First National basically because they had already had a theater chain network. So that was that was they didn't necessarily need. The, well, they probably could have used already by then the, the production space, but they really wanted, you know, the the forward thinking investment there was the was the distribution network. Um, 
And I mean, if you look in some of the old films too, uh, like like Showgirl in Hollywood is a great kind of movie about movies from 1930. And if you watch that, they're filming a lot of it on the First National lot. And in the background, you can see a lot of the a lot of the sound stages that are still there today, like in the middle of construction. Um, so you could see that in the background, which is kind of a fun timestamp. Um, and then they and then they got the their the Warner Ranch out by Calabasas. Um, so they had, you know, by the late 20s, they had quite a few properties. And of course, as you pointed out, and what did they did they did they have major successes before as a studio before the invention before the beginning of sound film? We know, obviously, Jazz Singer was released by Warners. We're not going to give them full credit for all the technology in there. That's not fair. But uh, right. But we obviously know they were the ones to finally make the 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 um, switch and pretty and it happened quickly. Once it started, it was didn't take mm-hmm. very long. But and it's worth pointing out the genius there is uh, yeah because you see that every now and then someone will be like oh Warner Brothers invented sound. It's like no, they did not invent sound. Right? They you know you know what they what their genius was was they were the first to sec- successfully bring sound to market nobody else could do that properly nobody else could could uh you know put together you know a day's worth of screenings with sound effectively uh you know even thomas edison thought it was it was not going to work well um a lot of people just didn't have faith in it um and of course there was fear that right if you have a silent movie it's easy to change the intertitles to whatever language uh, whatever country you're d- distributing to, if you start recording sound in one language, now you're stuck. So there was a lot of fear, kind of, I think, justified fear of of moving into the synchronized sound. But what they were able to do is create an event out of a sound movie and market it properly and get people excited about it. Um, and that's that's really where the Warner Brothers genius was with sound, um, was in really in the showmanship of it. And of course... They weren't obviously that they started, but it's not like silent movies suddenly just disappeared. Although they did go pretty quickly after that. They went quick. There are still some films from that period of time that were released in both versions, a silent version and a sound version. And some of the early sound movies, it just seems like there's these long periods periods of silence in them. I'm thinking of the front page. I mean, the front page was one that that had that as a. It, it was sort of a combination, and and there are periods where, you know, it's very quiet because for technology purposes, uh, they probably weren't ready to, to, to completely um, go over to that side. Right, and they didn't have, you know, film scoring, um, you know— with you know the the film score was used you know in the in the silent movies right either either um you know played along with the movie or right you had some you know a live accompaniment kind of a kind of a thing and and that's why you mean via warner brothers in 1928 so after the jazz singer they you know the what's really known as the first feature length synchronized sound movie is lights of new york which is a gangster film which is fitting for warner brothers and that one it is yeah, it's it is comical to watch in a sense. I mean, like it's it's incredibly historically significant. It, it sets so many of the foundations of of what you know became kind of the classic gangster film. But there there, it's hard not to kind of at least grin at some of the scenes where they're they're kind of leaning towards a bush to give their line, and it's pretty clear there's probably a microphone in that bush to pick up the sound. You know, so it's you know really what you're seeing is the evolution of this art form. You know, they're trying it. They're doing what the best they can with with really the rinky dink technology that they had to capture this stuff. And that's why, 
you know, you know, there, you know, I don't know if you saw Babylon came out last year. You know, a lot of people went, were back and forth on that, but there's a great scene in that where they're just trying to capture sound in early sound and the frustrations on the set. And I, it's just, it's hard not to feel like there was a lot of those scenes um, in the late twenties. And uh, yeah, the, sec really the second Downton Abbey movie used the same concept, the idea that they had to replace the uh, one of the actors because, you know, the whole idea of the, the sound was coming in at that point in, in, in the movie. And they had an issue with somebody whose voice just wasn't going to work for sound. Right. Right. And so it's the same idea that they have to come up with with new ways. And it was a true fact that people lost their jobs because they couldn't make that transition. Absolutely. And and one of the things that, I, you know, one of the, the kind of really heartwarming things I discovered that I found uh, in this book, you know, with with Jack Warner, you know, there's so many negative legends about him, a, a lot of which are true. Um, and and also that nearly as bad as some of the other moguls. But one of the things that I kept coming across was how Jack would support people who helped make the studio. So you know we we know how he equivocated and did, made some bad decisions during the during the the HUAC years and the big strike years, and he just did not know how to weather that. But th there's so many reports of of him keeping on and really all the, I mean, it's not just him, but it's, you know, he was one, you know, first person at the studio there, uh, keeping on payroll. A lot of these silent stars that, you know, like big stars that we don't really hear about anymore that didn't really transition, you know, Monty blue and some of these that he kept on payroll. Uh, you know, this was an era before, you know, social security. And it was just like, you know, these people helped, you know, create, this this massive dream factory and he kept them on payroll and you know i found a lot of other stories where you know some worker i think it was a custodian or somebody um was having a surgery and it wasn't sure they could afford it um so he just called the hospital and took care of the bill for them you know things like that where there was you know for this kind of fire breathing um sometimes draconian mogul you know there was this this true appreciation as well um, you know, which creates quite the kind of internal conflict for, for, you know, a lot of the stories we hear about Jack. Um, but you know, that's, that's the kind of thing I learned a lot in this book too. A lot of the human side of the brothers, the things that they would do and not try to get attention for it. They would just do it. And, you know, kind of the, the truth comes out in, you know, interviews with other people and other stories or, or local coverage that didn't get into the trades, you know, Albert Warner, before he died, funded a, a big hospital in Miami. And I found a picture of him watching the groundbreaking ceremony not long before he died. Um, didn't want his name on it, that kind of stuff. You know, there, there was tons of this kind of stuff, philanthropy that the brothers did um, that that I found that was incredibly heartwarming. So the book, I'm, I didn't really say this up front, but I'm hoping it's pretty clear from our discussion. The book is basically chronological. Um, right. So we're going in chronological order, and obviously we can't hit every part of it. Otherwise, this podcast would probably go for two hours, and we can't do that. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Warner Brothers studio and, it, and the brothers and their role in allowing for... Um, important films and going into the early now that we've got sound we get into the 30s and we're into the area of time that we're pre-code 
code exists. Nobody's um, enforcing it, at least for the first years. And what kind of movies, I mean, we know we have examples of what's considered a Warner film from that period, but for those who might not know, what kind of movies were they making in the early 30s? So th- this is where you really get to your ripping from the headlines. I mean, they were. I, I show in my book that they were really ripping from the headlines as early as the late 19-teens. But when you get into the 30s, they're they are making movies that are drawing from from big news stories. You're talking about the Great Depression, movies about struggle, movies about addiction, movies about crime, gangsters. You know, even their musicals uh, have you know something like Goldinger's in 1933. I mean, these you know a lot of the Busby Berkeley musicals uh, all all deal with with performers that are struggling and dealing with the depression so as opposed to movies being escapist their movies were 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 looking at the culture head on um and a lot of this stems from and that's one of the things i try to show in the book how the content of the movies even though the brothers weren't necessarily making the movies writing the movies um but this attitude of being very socially conscious and plugged into the culture uh, had a top down there was definitely a trickle down influence with that. And, you know, Harry gave as one of the things I wanted to highlight in the book, Harry gave so many public speeches about um, taking the world seriously and using movies to not only entertain, but to educate and to get people to think and consider um, other ideas. Um, and he would do this not only at conventions and big public addresses, but he would he would hold court on the lot. And he would he would have kind of an afternoon where everybody in the lot would get together and have a meal. And Harry would address the entire company. And, you know, he wanted to make sure everybody felt that they were a part of doing something good, not just, you know, the top, you know, above the line people, but everybody working on set, set decorators, painters, custodians, whatever your job was. Um, he wanted to make sure that they they knew that they were a part of what Warner Brothers was trying to do. So, you know, movies like I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, you know, great movie, long title. Um, there's so much of the moment history plugged into that movie. Um, you know, some of the stuff that I that I found, I, I put in my, my first book as well, but I found a little bit more for this. Um, but they were really, I mean, Robert Burns, who wrote that book, who was a, that the the movie was based on, you know, was a real fugitive from a chain gang when he wrote the book and Warner brothers was housing him on the lot, um, secretly, um, which was really, really funny. And I I found in Mervyn Leroy, who who directed it, Mervyn Leroy's memoir, he wrote a lot about, um, housing Robert Burns and trying to keep it secret on the lot and having him inform the movie and then go on. Um, and promotional tours with them and stuff like that. But I mean, this was a, this is a perfect Warner Brothers movie, uh, just because it's every anybody that watched that movie in 1932 could feel the frustrations of the characters in the movie, and that's the kind of thing that they wanted to convey. They wanted to convey to the audience, basically, we see you, um, and we we you know here we understand your and sympathize. Probably most importantly, sympathize with the struggle during the Depression. And of course, um, moving forward, they also intersect with your second book, uh, yep. Hollywood Hates Hitler, because they were the they. I keep saying they, and you are welcome to correct me by this point as to who was actually involved. But 
This is where we get into the situation where the uh, fascism is rising in Europe and there is major controversy going on in the United States as far as what America's role should be in the world. And uh, the Warners, the Warner Brothers and the studio was heavily involved in avoiding anything to make it seem, you know, to get away from, as you as you put in the title of the chapter, fighting fascism, American firsters in the U.S. Senate. Right. Yeah. They, so they are taking on fascism on multiple fronts. You know, they they start they really take the 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 baton um for making anti-fascist movies, anti-authoritarian movies, you know, people need to remember, you know, the the reason that there was not anti-Nazi movies directly before 1939 when they did Confessions of a Nazi Spy uh, is because there were rules in the code about ridiculing other countries and religions and things like that. So you, even though pretty much everyone in Hollywood was, was not a fan of Nazi Germany, uh, you couldn't outright ridicule Nazi Germany because it was against the production code. Now, by the by, you know, 1934, the production code was, you know, this is our transition here is actually being enforced, right? Joe Breen comes in and 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 now there there's there's a much more adherence to this code. So anybody who wanted to make um an anti-Nazi movie had a hard time doing it. And so they started making movies like Black Legion and they won't forget uh these movies that deal with with authoritarianism that is is very thinly veiled so the black legion is kind of an anti-kkk movie there actually was a group called the black legion in the midwest um that was basically like the kkk um they won't forget deals with anti-semitism without mentioning jews uh, a lot of movies like this um and at the same time, the brothers uh, in the background. So Harry's he's he's traveling to Europe. He's meeting with world leaders. He's very concerned with what's going on. He's concerned that a lot of the world leaders in Europe don't think there's going to be a world war. Uh, he comes back here. He's he's trying to get uh, other studios on board. Um, a lot of the studios are actually thanks to um, a couple books that came out a few years ago. We now know that the that the moguls were funding anti-Nazi espionage. In Los Angeles, so this was very much on the forefront of their their minds. Um, but what Warner Brothers does differently is they're they're actually putting that on the screen as well. Um, so they they really take the lead on on making these kinds of movies. And of course, Confession of a Nazi Spy, and then in 1939, and the other studios start to jump on board as well. And you know, it's not a it's not a huge output of any of the studio's movies, but it, it certainly draw, drew, drew attention of the Senate, right? So that was my last book. I, you know, I, I chronicle the investigation in late 1941 that the Senate went after Hollywood for warmongering, um, among other things. Uh, but this was this was a pretty wild time um, in, in Hollywood. You know, you had the Anti-Nazi League going on. You had the first Dyes hearings going on, um, looking at extremism. Um, in all kinds of sectors, um, including Hollywood, um, which is kind of the origins of what HUAC became later. Um, and and the brothers were really plugged into this. And one of the things that they started to do, this is where I could get a lot of insight from them, is there there was, a, and I think a lot of studios had this kind of thing, but they had a, a Warner Club and employees could join it. And there were perks. So, you know, if you got married or if you had a kid, you know, there would be, you know, a donation from the club to, to you as a gift. Um, they had parties and they had a newsletter. And um, I've read all of 
of what mostly Jack and Harry wrote in the Warner Club news, and they would do updates every so often. They would do yearly up, you know, big big letters uh, at the end or the beginning of every year, and these letters really really mirrored a lot of the stuff they said publicly, you know, their, their activism or their, their politics or their, their feelings about, you know, defending the country during the rise of Nazism and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, again, that's the kind of stuff we see trickle down into the movies. Yeah. I was going to, part of what I wanted to talk about today, besides just the book is, and that's where I'm getting myself into a hole by going just straight chronologically is that, there are some specifics that I wanted to talk about, so I think I'm going to sort of do that now, and then sure. you know, because the book pretty much follows till 1978, which is uh, you know the period of the time that, that that the book covers. But one of the things that we know, and obviously we know Warner's is pretty much in the room in the news over the last year or so because of what they've done to um, the studio or whatever was Warner's. Now it's not the same anymore as we know, but, and what's going on over on the streaming side and TCM and some of the other major controversies that unfortunately the studio that was Warner Brothers has gotten themselves into. But I wanted to sort of, to come into some of this just for you, to give you a chance to give some thoughts about things. Now, when they switched over to Max, when HBO Max became Max, they premiered a 100th anniversary uh, documentary four parts and I watched it and I felt okay they my main issue with it with it was it was let's let's find everything positive we can say and let's not in any way shape or form pretend like anything bad ever happened yep but there were some good things that came out of the documentary and most of part one is covering the period we're talking about but one of the other things that came out was that many of the people they interviewed, most of which are more current people, talked about how Warner's as a, as a studio was pro-artist, whether it be actors or directors or writers. From your research and, and what you did for this book, how true is something like that? Do, is it as cut and dried as it seemed to be giving in that? It's uh, yes and no. So of course, there you know there are the famous spats, right? You know, with with Cagney and De Havilland and Betty Davis and this kind of stuff. Um, you know, there were there was the strikes in, in the forties. Um, but what I found in a lot of interviews um, and in books, memoirs, that kind of stuff, at the end of the day. Um, you know, there, yeah, there were spats with artists over contract, over money. I mean, they were, they were the most, you know, tight fisted studio. Everybody knows that. Um, but they were maybe more so than anyone else, definitely pro artists. They wanted to make good movies. And, um, you know, there was a lot of, I mean, you know, one, a lot, one of the things where you can, you can find, um, I don't know if the transcripts available, I found it. So after Jack died, uh, a couple of years after Jack died, there was a, a, a big celebration and remembrance. When did he at, die? Let's get it. In seventy-eight. That's that's the end of the book. But yeah, I just wanted to make sure that was clear right. in what we were talking. And about. and at the end of the book, um, I talk a little bit about this this uh, remembrance. Of, I think it was in nineteen eighty, um, 
where everybody who was still alive was there, people who had spats with him, de Havilland was there. Um, and they all really at the end of the day mentioned his his support for them, where there was, yeah, there there was times where there was kind of this brawling. But at the end of the day, they they still had respect for the studio because they wanted to they wanted to make something good, if not great. And, you know, and I talked to towards the end of my book, I finally met Greg Orr, who's Jack's grandson. And that's another great documentary. He updated that for this year. And there's a lot of archival interviews that he got in the late 80s, early 90s, when a lot of these people were still alive. Um, and he told me last time I talked to him, he told me a story about, you know, showing that first documentary to Olivia de Havilland. And there was lots of lots of, you know, she was full of stories, of course, but really one of the big things that validates that she said that seems to validate a lot of what I found was that there was no because he had asked her, like, you know, was this the studio where there was you know a lot of casting couch stuff, this kind of stuff? And she was like, absolutely not. There was no time for that. Everybody was so dedicated to the the task at hand um, and trying to make you know, something good and, and something, you know, under budget, all this kind of stuff that there was not a lot of time for BS. Um, everybody was so focused. And, um, you know, it sounds like even the stories that came out about somebody like Busby Berkeley, who could be, you know, very, you know, controlling and perfectionist on the set, you know, but if he had somebody that he saw started to crack, um, all of a sudden that, that, you know, kind of stone wall would come down and all of a sudden it was this kind of support, like, all right, do we need to take some time? Let's figure out, let's get everyone back on track, rest it up. All right. I see your feet are bleeding. <laughs> Maybe we take a break. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it wasn't, you know, not everybody was destroyed at the studio. And I found, you know, even after the Warners died, people giving interviews where they could have just unloaded on how awful it was. It wasn't really there. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that the studio was kind of a cut above on a, in, a, in a lot of ways. I mean, they weren't without their problems. They weren't without their controversies. Um, Jack Warner was far from a perfect person. You know, not a great husband, not a great dad. We know all this stuff. Um, but it doesn't go really past that very far like it would with, you know, like once Zanuck had his own studio and all the legends of, you know, what he was up to or Mayer or any of these people. It, there's none of that stuff comes up with Warner Brothers. So did the studio Warner the Warner Brothers studio fall victim to pretty much the same thing that destroyed the studio system in general, which is they lost the ability to have their own um, distribution. They had to get away from product from presentation, and they lost their studios. And just like everybody else in in Hollywood, the that that was the beginning of the end for the what we would call the studio system. Yeah, the the Paramount decrees in '48 I mean, really kind of set you know really leveled everybody. Um, you know they 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 lost a lot, um, but also with with Jack in particular. By that time, Harry was getting pretty old. He was about to you know he was trying to get everybody retire. That's a whole nother story. Um, but Jack was he was he was a really tough sell on television. Um, it was a tough sell on, you know, licensing movies to television, which was a great way to, to get some money out of movies. You're done, you know, you've done exhibiting. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of that, um, you know, they definitely had some, some big movies, but yeah, I think there was, you know, they, they had the, really the entire industry had very similar problems once the Paramount decrees came in 
and they no longer had the same amount of control um, over their product that they once did. So when when does Jack Warner basically disappear from Warner Brothers? You know, that's a good question because he's still he's still I mean, really, it's a, a, not long after Bonnie and Clyde, which right, was in 67, right? Right. And there's a lot of stories about his distaste of that movie. Um, and he comes in, you know, he's he's still by the late late 60s. He's he's more or less a figurehead, um, but he's still there. You know, one of the things that I learned about Jack is he, you know, he was was very much hands on watching dailies, working with editors. And, you know, that, that Jack was a, one of the big reasons why the Warner Brothers films were so tight and punchy, because he just knew, you know, he, he would get bored fast. And that, that's where, you know, you look back in history, you know, it's all the legends of, you know, Jack with Bonnie and Clyde. And oh, if I have to get up and take a piss during this movie, it's bad. And, you know, it gets over and he's like, oh, it was a three piss picture or whatever it was. It's like that 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 instinct of like how can we tighten this movie up and make it punchier not that bonnie and clyde lacks any punch but you know i I think that's that's part of his his um his brilliant showmanship that he he knew um and so he's still by the late 60s he's still there having opinions all of that but he eventually leaves um you know i'm actually forgetting the exact date but he starts his own production company um, and he produces a couple movies. Um, he's still, you know, his health is declining in the 70s pretty quickly. Um, but he produces, you know, 1776, um, a Billy the Kid movie. Um, he's got his his fingerprints on a couple other projects. Um, nothing major. He has he has his own office, um, you know, not on the Warner Brothers lot. And um, and he's he's still I mean, he's he's there was really no quit in this guy, right? He wanted, he was still wanted to to play around and, and be producer and be Mr. Hollywood and try to get things made. Um, it really is until the last maybe few years of his life where he's, he's starting to lose, you know, sight and mobility and this kind of stuff where, where it becomes a pretty quick um, decline, but he's, I mean, just like the rest of his brothers, they were, I mean, you know, once, you know, the, the, you know, again, the whole other big story of when they were all supposed to retire and Jack didn't, you know, you know, Albert actually got a retirement. Harry did not live long into retirement. Um, and Jack, I really never wanted to retire. I think he just loved being that studio guy and, and trying to get things made. And, um, of course, you know, the papers, you know, calling him for interviews. <laughs> he absolutely loved one of the things I say in the beginning of my book is that, you know, Jack loved to see his name in the paper, but Harry loved to see his ideas in the paper. And I think that's one of the big differences between the two of them. And actually, that is one of the the story of Jack Warner never retiring and, and that whole thing actually does make it into that 100th anniversary documentary a little bit. So, right. But, but we do get a little of that. But yeah, his of course, it was a century city. Right. Of course, by this point, the studio itself has already gone through its. Uh, beginnings of its changeover into you know big business and you know by this point seven arts and so on and so forth and of course uh sometimes the history of warner brothers can be watched just by looking at you know when you watch a warner brothers movie okay what what does it say at the beginning you know as far as where the movie is yeah what's under the what's what what's under the shield right who owns it today now let 
let's briefly talk about your sourcing because obviously, as you said, it's uh, getting interviews at this point with participants is going is is very tough. But uh, what kind of source? And you mentioned right at the beginning that some of the the work that you did is because you were able to do it because of the availability of sources that might not have been available in the past. I always like asking about that part. Where did you get your uh, sources and what, what, what helped you the most in, as far as putting this together? Absolutely. So, I mean, so the, the big obvious ones are obviously the, the Academy Archive in Beverly Hills. There's, they have, there's a massive collection of stuff. Um, and the USC Archive uh, has uh, the you know the Warner Brothers one of the biggest collections of Warner Brothers stuff uh, besides uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society, which also has a ton of Warner Brothers stuff. So that's production files, legal files. Um, at, at USC, there's actually a big folder where it's just Warner Brothers, like just history, um, general history stuff. So you know that's where I found a lot of early twenties, some of the you know some of the you know some of these contracts and. And things you know, or just updates about the studio that were handwritten, um, and but there's but a lot of other stuff. Uh, there, there's an oral history collection um, at I think it's at is it Texas Christian University? The University in Texas has a huge oral history collection where there's just tons of um, interviews with people um, that that have stories and updates and anecdotes. Um, I found a lot of good stuff in there. You know, some some of the things I found actually at USC were were articles written by a journalist in Youngstown, Ohio, where the brothers were, and she would kind of grew up with, you know, you know, was kind of came of age with them and kind of chronicled their career as they were out in Hollywood. You know, she was kind of the local, the local reporter, the hometown reporter that was covering, you know, the the famous people from town. So I got a lot of stuff from there. Um also, there's a ton of interviews and, and things now archived in, in the Media History Digital Archive, um, which is run um, through the University of Wisconsin. There's a the Lantern search engine that a lot of people are familiar with now. There's just a treasure trove of stuff waiting to be discovered in there. Um, and that's where I actually found a lot of, of interviews, some pictures of early offices that have never been found, but also interviews and some, some words from... Uh, Albert Warner, who is particularly difficult to track down throughout history because he just avoided the press expertly. So he was really hard to find. So anytime I could find, uh, you know, especially in the early days when he was one of the older, you know, more established brothers, he would he would be one of the ones in the teens and early 20s that would give interviews him and Harry. Um, you know, once Jack and Sam were older, they would they would get more more space. Um, but Albert was particularly difficult to track down. Um, but another thing that was really fun, uh, and I'm in, in, incredibly grateful for. So I mentioned Cass Warner, Harry's granddaughter, wrote a book with with some of her family members um, in the early '90s um, called The Brothers Warner, and she had done a ton, you know so many interviews. She she's kind of been the steward of Warner family history for so long. And on her website, she has just uploaded a ton of interviews that she's done with people over the years, stuff that didn't get into that book. So I was able to find, you know, I was able to learn a lot from Harry Warner's secretary, who she interviewed towards the end of her life. Um, things like that. Always um, look for the secretaries. They right, know they right. know more than anybody. <laughs> well and and little gems. I mean there's there was I found so there was this script girl who worked at Warner Brothers from 1930 to 1960. 
Um, her name is Alma Young. And there's an interview of her at the Academy Library. But this is like the only proof of her existence. I, I mean, there, there's, we can't find anything. I've had, I've asked other other pros to help me, you know, Los, librarians in Los Angeles, other historians, how can I find stuff about her? Um, and it's like she didn't exist. Um, so I'm working on an article about her to hopefully get some some info. But I mean, she had stories about the brothers. I mean, she was there when they incorporated. She was there when they transitioned to sound. She had opinions on the brothers and how they interacted. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of stuff that you can just, it's easier to track down now because things are cataloged and you can search um, and you just, you still got to do that. You still got to sift through everything. You still got to look at everything, but at least you can make a master list of stuff. Um, and when a lot of these previous books were written, you didn't, you didn't have that, that digital assistance. So now you can, you can put together a bigger catalog of material um, to really create, hopefully, you know, a definitive narrative, which will fill in gaps, question legends, all that kind of stuff. I know from teaching students, non-historian students who have to take a history class, the whole concept of primary source is just is yep. is a total mystery to them because it never occurs to them to even think about that part of it. Where do we? And then I tell, I give them examples. Well, you know, accountants use primary sources too. It just so happens instead of them being articles and, and interviews and things, it's data from the company, you know, the financial stuff. And then they put together right. the same way. And primary sources are great, but you've got to find them. And you've got, I mean, I've been, you know, in anything else that I do, it's the same thing, trying to find some of this material. You hope it's out there, but finding it sometimes can be so difficult. So, um, right. I, I and, I, and I teach, I, I use Lantern in one of my classes. I have students, you know, do a review of um, one magazine from Hollywood's golden age. And they, they usually kind of roll their eyes at first. And by the end of the project, they, they, they're in disbelief of how fun it was to, to try to get a sense of what it was like in a previous time by looking at a primary source. And I, you know, I always tell them a lot of times when I pick up a book, if it's, especially if it's from an author I'm not familiar with, one of the first things I do is I go to the back and I look at the research, you know, is it primary source? Did they, did they go into archives or are they just citing other people's stuff? Um, and that usually kind of opens their eyes like, oh, this, you know, so now we're looking at a layer of quality here and you can kind of give the, give them a sense of the importance of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to nerd out completely and say I like the books where the acknowledgments are up front rather than at the back. <laughs> because when I start to read a book, I mean, sometimes I'll go back and re I'll read the acknowledgments first because I want to know, okay, where's the information right. coming from? And your acknowledgments, in your case, they are at the end, but that's okay. Who cares? I didn't get a choice. That's yeah, usually the person decides where that all goes. Yeah, whatever. It, but it, it it's where <laughs> you start to say, okay, what did they, what did this author do to get their information? I mean, because... Mm -hmm. Most every most of the books that I've done interviews for, even though they're all film, you know, basically film related, I, I'd like to go on the history part. And those are the kind of things that are important to me is sourcing and and, and where where did you get the concepts? And because I think listeners who might also be writers or, you know, interested understanding what's out there is always such a great thing that there is a lot of material out there particularly depending on the topic but film related there is quite a bit and there's you, so you, much out there well you, and i think i mentioned i mean if anyone goes back and listens to the talk we did on hollywood hates hitler i mean i i reached out to the national archives to see if there was anything on this and 
they they wrote back and they said, yeah, there's about a thousand pages and it's all out of order because nobody has looked at it yet. You know, since it was all just dumped in there in 1941 or whatever, dumped in somebody's office and then, you know, don't, you know sent there eventually. Yeah, there's you know anybody who has spent time in an archive knows that there are still so many stories to tell and so much um, that can be, you know, chronicled and, um, you know, contextualized and you know there's there's going to be no end to it which is fun for me because you know some people find the research part of it to be kind of a pain in the ass for me i i absolutely love it that's just one of i it's it's so fun every day because you just never know what you're going to discover yeah the government loves to archive so don't ever if it's a government related thing you're looking for the chances are good it's out there especially if it's in the right period of time anything you know, it's just unbelievable how much certain events, you know, historical events are well documented, especially if it was somewhere related to the government. There's a lot of stuff and we only can get access to the easy stuff, but there's plenty out there for, for those kind of things. So what are you, uh, now that obviously this book is out, although you're just starting, we're, we're, like I say, we're talking before the book actually is out and you're starting your publicity work but um what what's next on the uh, agenda for you or what are you working on during this period um i, I have a couple books in the works i just finished um a, a book on the man who shot liberty valance so i that there's a new series out of university new mexico press called real west which is basically like the bfi film classics series but it's for just for westerns so there's a couple books out on that alan Rohde has one on blood on the moon and i think kirk ellis has one on ride lonesome and i finished the, the i you know i'm working um just final edits on the managed at liberty valance which i think is a very underrated um john ford movie a very underrated john wayne and jimmy stewart movie so uh I'm, i'll be excited to talk about that movie a little bit more um, but uh, really, the uh, the other project that's probably furthest as long is some some dabbling uh, in, a, in a, a book about James Cagney and his family in Hollywood. That sounds good. Um, by the way, before I forget, and I don't want to not for, I don't want to forget this because I've interviewed a number of authors from the whose books were published by the University Press of Kentucky, which is where I actually live, is in Kentucky. Um, this is this book is part of their Screen Classics series, and I, I suspect if I went through the list of this of the books, and it's in the book actually, the list of their various books, I know I've interviewed a number of folks who have written for that series. So it's it's great that they are there are so many studio um, publishers, academic publishers now, who are trying to get these film related and and arts related books out there. So it's it's great that they're there. You know, and, and actually to bring this full circle. So I mentioned the very beginning that Pat McGilligan, you know, wanted to talk to me and convince me to do the whole Warner Brothers. And that's one of the reasons the Screen Classic series he's the editor for. So, you know, he's a, you know, a, a famous biographer in his own right. And that's one of the reasons I had the confidence to take on kind of a daunting project because I knew, you know, I would I would have, you know, the advice um, and the feedback of someone who's written so many absolutely amazing biographies. Um, that I, I could get some good direction. Um, and I, I definitely did. He definitely saved me uh, quite a few headaches um, when I didn't know what, you know, because there's certain things where it's like, oh, what do I do when I get to like something like Casablanca, right? Like, because there's so much to say about it. 
but he would say like, well, you know, I, however much the brothers were involved is all you need to talk about. So it's like, okay, I don't have to dedicate all this time to Casablanca. I can talk about a little bit of the, the how it came about and then kind of skip to when Jack Warner stole the Oscar from Hal Wallace, um, which was awesome. And then it helps to keep the narrative going because in a, something like this, there are so many rabbit holes you can go down. Every movie you mention is its own story and its own history. So you know, having that guidance was was instrumental in in helping me make this truly like the Warner Brothers and not every other side story that they're connected to. Well, and there's no question from looking through the lists of some of the, in the book to some of the films that they did come out from the Warner Brothers that uh, there are a lot of books that still can be written about some of the work they did. Well, as I say, uh, I know you're just getting started with your publicity, but the book is done and will be out at the day around or about the day we, that, that this publishes. So this this interview publishes. So I'm glad we were able to talk early on in the process. Hopefully it gave you enough information to get yourself back into the book now, given that it's been come. I mean, I think I you first mentioned it months ago and I saw it and I think I reached out to you right then saying, well, we need going to need to talk. And that was quite yep. a while ago. And, and so I appreciate your help in getting me a copy of the book and get everything ready. So good Absolutely. luck with I appreciate your support. Good luck with your uh, publicity and with the book and your future work. Um, as I say, there's just so much in there. And, and frankly, I think given that Warner brothers is so much in the news right now for good and bad, I think we can all celebrate their 100th anniversary with this book, and it's it's definitely a good place to to get a better sense for readers. Thank you. So thanks for your help, and thanks for uh, appearing with me. Absolutely. Thanks again. Always a pleasure. <laughs>